welcome back. I said to Stacey when she had to come up here, and it's really hot for her up there. Um, it's good because the Lord said to me about two years ago, he really started laying on my heart that we need to go back to the things we did at first. So I said, so that's what we did at first. You used to sit up on stage. She said, no, what we did at first was people read their Bibles. And I said, well, they haven't got their Bibles here. And she said, well, they've all got their iPhones. So but I guess that's, that would be hard for me because I'd be, keep wanting to say, hey, get off your phone. Stop being so disrespectful while I'm preaching. All right, so um, I'm just going to pray before I bring the word. Father, at the start of this year, we just want to declare as a body again that Jesus Christ is the head of this church. And Lord, um, my prayer for Life House is that we will seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And your word also declares that you have exalted above all things the name of Jesus and your word. And so, Lord, we want to do that this year as a body. We want to exalt above everything the name of Jesus and the word. And so I just bring this message to you, Lord. I just yield myself to you, and I just ask that this word is going to just go out and accomplish what you've planned for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as you know, this is an introduction to a series that David and I are going to be doing over the next few months on deception in the church. Today, I won't be going into in great depth into any particular deception because I'm just giving you an introduction, just an outline as to why we need to do this series and God's been laying a weight on both David and I with regards to the state of his body. And I've mentioned in a previous sermon that both David and I take the, feel the weight um, of the responsibility of the following scripture, specifically the part in italics. And it's Hebrews 17, 13 verse 17. It says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Now, we will give an account for our teaching and preaching, and we take that part very seriously. The second part is your responsibility that you make my work a joy, not a burden. But that part's not up to me. So, hate or love me after the sermon, I don't really care. But if you do go to the hate side of it, stirs up things in you, then maybe you need to go home and ask the Holy Spirit why. But be prepared for an answer, and it might not be the answer that you like. All right, so we've got a responsibility to teach you the full word of God. And deception has most certainly entered into some parts of the body of Jesus Christ. And we need to ensure that we are part of that group of far virgins who are ready and awake when the bridegroom comes. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 to 12 says, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. That part there really a part jumped out at me. God sends them a powerful delusion. David and I often chat about self-deception and how hard it is to break through that and how strong it is. And just reading that made me realize why, because God actually sends a powerful delusion if you want to go down that route. So either you believe the truth or you believe a lie. Is that simple? You either believe one or the other, and it is black and white. And that was the choice that Eve faced, to believe what God had said. In Genesis 2.17, God said to her, 
or to Adam actually, but for, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Or the other choice is to believe the lie that Satan offers. In Genesis 3, 4, you will not certainly die. die. Sorry, the serpent said to the woman, one tiny little word of difference. You will certainly die, God says. You will not certainly die, Satan says. One tiny little word turns that truth into a total lie. Derek Prince puts it like this. She had two options. She chose the lie. That is unbelief. What is unbelief? It is believing the lie. It does not mean believing in nothing. Everybody believes in something. The decision is always the same. Will I believe God or will I believe Satan? God says if you do not believe the truth, he will see to it that you believe the lie. Do not fool around with this. Do not believe just as much as it suits you and leave the rest. Incomplete obedience is unbelief. You can receive the truth or you can come under delusion. As this age closes, those are the only two options available to God's people. All right, who here thinks that they could be under self-deception in some areas of their life? Anyone willing to put their hand up? I am. Anyone think they could be under self-deception? All right. Who here does everything that the Bible commands? All right, no hands there. Listen to James 1.22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So if I read and understand that scripture correctly, it's telling me that if I just listen to the word and if I don't do it, if I don't apply it, then I'm deceiving myself. So disobedience to the word of God, either not doing what it says at all or maybe not doing what it says in one or two areas of your life is self-deception. And the deception is that you give yourself excuses. You give yourself reasons to justify not obeying particular parts of the word. You're deceiving yourself because you're justifying in your own mind why it's okay in your particular situation or circumstance not to do what the word commands. And no matter how you might disguise or package it to yourself, if you're not doing what the word says, you are in disobedience. And any belief or statement contrary to the word of God is a lie. So any reasoning or arguments that you might provide yourself with for believing anything contrary to the word, you believe in a lie and it's disobedience. So again, from my personal store of experience, let me share some common excuses. As I say, I always have a good workout myself first when I'm preparing these sermons. And then um, whenever I share anything, I'm always going from, often going from personal experience, whether it be my own or things I've dealt with, but often it's my own first All right, here's one of the excuses. I can't help it. Yes, you can. The Word of God says you've been given a spirit of love, power, and self-control. The problem actually is often that we're not willing to crucify flesh to exercise and develop the self-control. Here's another one. It's how I was brought up, or it's because of my wounds that I react like this. Again, statements like that are contrary to the Word of God. What you actually, um, you know, I'm not saying that you may not have been hurt or wounded, but to say that you can't help your reactions if, if that's, that emotional wounds gets triggered and you react in a certain way is wrong because you justifying your flesh reaction and your sinful behaviors that you've learnt to try and, as a coping mechanism. So, no, you know, when the situation or the stress triggers that, you go into those behaviors. And remember what I always said, and I was thinking about this, maybe this could be on my, I was going to say on my headstone, but I think I'll get cremated, but 
remember there are no buts, ifs, or maybes when it comes to the Word of God. So what is the point I'm making here? The point is that I've just shown you how easily we can fall into self-deception. That scripture from James, James clearly tells us if we don't do what the Word says, we're deceiving ourselves. Now, out of the 27 books of the New Testament, 22 give direct warning about being deceived. And out of the remaining five, at least three, if not four, Philemon being the exception, of these were written addressing false teaching that had already crept into the church. And so my point is the warnings are for us too. We need to take them seriously. That's why the series of teaching is so important. Matthew 24, 24, Jesus himself said, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. This is life and death, church. And I want, I'm going to spend the rest of the sermon now looking at 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now, I'm going to break down and look at each of those four verses. So back to 2 Timothy 4.1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. To be given a charge is a serious thing. It's not to be taken lightly. So what does it mean to be given a charge? Um, some definitions for you. A charge is to impose a duty, a responsibility, or an obligation on. To instruct or urge authoritatively to command. So in that verse, we see the gravity of what Paul is saying to Timothy. He charges him. He commands him in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. And by doing that, he's reminding Timothy that they are watching. God and Jesus, God is watching. And the coming judgment, he reminds him of the coming judgment that we're going to face one day as well. So our work is going to be tested, and we need to do our work in such a way that we're going to be able to offer it as a pleasing sacrifice to Christ. Let's move on to verse 2 to see what the serious charge is about. And I've put up um, the NIV and the Amplified just because I like... Um, Oh, well, might not, uh, I think it won't fit. Okay, oh, that's not that one. But preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The Amplified says this, herald and preach the word, keep your sense of urgency, stand by, be at hand and ready, whether the opportunity seems to be favorable or unfavorable, whether it is convenient or in inconvenient, whether it is welcome or unwelcome, you as a preacher of the word are to show people in what way their lives are wrong and convince them, rebuking and correcting, warning and urging and encouraging them, being unflagging and inexhaustible in patience and teaching. So Paul's charging Timothy here to preach the word of God, the scriptures. He's charging him to preach no matter if it's convenient or inconvenient. Or inconvenient sorry. I often think how often do I make excuses? Oh, it's not the right time to talk now or, you know, the person's not going to want to hear it. 
He charges them to preach whether his preaching is received favorably or not. He's charged with delivering the full message, and that's what I'm going to look at. Because Paul says, correct, rebuke, and encourage. And you know, people don't always like to hear those first two, correct and rebuke. And it gravely, gravely concerns me that some preachers who have got worldwide platforms are not preaching the full word of God. Only parts of it. Only the parts that will be favorably received. The parts that don't offend anyone. The parts that allow the preacher to be popular and loved by everyone. I read an article by Stephen J. Cole that sums it up like this. False teachers are usually nice, likable, and winsome. They flatter you by telling you what you want to hear. They smile a lot as they tell you how great you are and how you can have your best life now. They don't talk about anything negative like sin and the coming judgment. They say people are beat down enough as it is. When they come to church, they need to hear a positive message like God's love and acceptance. The only problem is God's love and acceptance is being preached apart from repentance. They use biblical verses often out of context and biblical language, but they often change the meaning of the terms. I read three verbs in that charge. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. Paul didn't tell Timothy to encourage, 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 but to correct, rebuke, and encourage. That's what the Word of God says. And if you're only listening to teachers where it's encourage, 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 and the other two, correct and rebuke, are not part of your spiritual diet, then your life is going to be healthy and unbalanced. You will remain carnal and shallow. Think of a child being fed only sugar. Okay, they're going to be headed for a host of problems and heartache. You know what? Correct, rebuke, and encourage is good news because it means you're going to be strengthened, equipped, and brought to maturity. Don't take my word for for it. Listen to what the Word of God says. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, I'll be reading later from a book um, by Steve Hill called Spiritual Avalanche where he got a really good vision from the Lord and It was just really timely that I was reading it at the same time as I was preparing this message. But a statement that he makes is this. Jesus came in grace and truth, not grace and grace. And he goes on to say that we can test our spiritual diet and the way that we would test the messages that we're feeding ourselves on is this. Does it always tell me what my itching ears want to hear or does it rebuke my flesh? Does it give me a way to avoid the cross or does it call me to pick up my cross daily? Does it allow me to cater to my sinful desires or does it call me to die to sinful desires? The false love, the hyper grace movement currently in Christianity only seems to be preaching out of that word encourage. And, you know, when I talk about false love and hyper grace, we're going to go into that in more detail later on in the series. But basically, it's come as you are. Jesus accepts you just as you are, and that is true. It's truth, okay? But this is then where, when truth becomes an error or a lie. But basically, the message then is you can stay as you are because Jesus loves you, he did it all, and there's not even a call to repentance. Or if there is, it's just a one-off thing. What about sanctification, that lifelong process 
of where as you grow closer and closer to the Lord, more and more impurities come up, you repent, you get convicted, you go on. That should be happening all through your life sanctification. You know, and I was discussing with David, and we were saying that while some of these preachers where it's just encourage, 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 are no doubt sincere, and I'm sure they love the Lord, and they often start off teaching correct things about God's love and grace, but the danger lies in that, that if they're only teaching that. Because for some people, that's all they're listening to, all right? Some people follow the message, the messenger, and they don't actually check out the word for themselves. So believe everything that he or she is saying. And all the good stuff about love and blessing, etc. if it's given in the correct context, is correct. But unfortunately, even that has been taken out of context sometimes and is evolving to justify this hyper grace. And you know, there's a whole mountain of other scripture regarding dealing with your flesh and sin, dying to self, counting the cost. What happens if people aren't taught this? What happens is that the focus then begins to shift off Jesus and what we can do to serve him. It shifts off us realizing that we are servants and we actually have no rights to the focus being about us, how awesome, gifted and talented we are and what God is going to do for us. Think about it as a child who only receives praise and affirmation, who's constantly told how wonderful they are. And any bad behavior, tantrums, sulking, etc. No, nothing intended here, Lena. <laughs> um, any bad behavior, tantrums, sulking are always excused and they, they always get what they want and they never get disciplined. What is the result going to be? I'll tell you what the result is. It's a shallow, self-centered, entitled child. And if we apply that to a Christian who's only given encourage, encourage, encourage scriptures, sometimes as well where they're given out of context and, the, and out of, without the conditions and without a balance. Listen to this by Stephen J. Cole again. They use biblical verses often out of context in biblical language, but they often change the meaning of the terms. That's a huge problem out of context and changing the meaning of terms. For example, God does want us to be blessed. I do believe that. But let's see how they would like this definition of blessed. I bet it's not the same definition that they have that Jesus considered being blessed. Listen to what Jesus said blessed was. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. I don't know how preachers teaching only on blessing and prosperity can handle those words of Jesus as well as numerous other scriptures. Here's another one, 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So I just said I don't know how they handle those verses, but I probably do. It's probably something like this. You just haven't sown enough, or you haven't got enough faith. You just believe, or you stop that negative confession over your life that you are a nobody, that you have no rights to demand. God wants to make you a somebody. He wants to make you wealthy. He loves you. My God would not want to see you persecuted or under any trials of hardship. Just talk to that mountain of negativity and unbelief in Jesus' name. Rubbish. That is rubbish. That builds an entitlement mentality in the Christian. 
Fires are sent to refine us, difficulties to develop fruit, perseverance to build character, persecutions, false accusations, betrayals. It all happened to Jesus, and he said if it happened to him, it's going to happen to us. It's not and it never has been about us, but it is about us being conformed to his image, his standard. And you know what? We're not entitled to anything. We need to be careful because without even realizing, sometimes we can get into that mentality, God, I've served you faithfully. I go to church, I tithe, I do this, I do that. When is it going to be my turn? Why are you letting this happen to me? You know, it happens without realizing. We start entertaining thoughts like that. God owes us nothing, but we owe him everything. And you see, the danger of this unbalanced diet is that only hearing part of the gospel, and this is why it just makes me sick to my stomach, is because I feel for people. Because if that's all they're hearing, then when hardship comes, they're going to, and the hardships will come, these people will fall away. And that's a tragedy. It's where you hear people saying things like, I've tried Christianity, it doesn't work for me. Or they get angry with God and go into sin. And those words of Paul, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's actually an encouragement, or it should be to you, to hear verses like that should encourage you. Because you know what to expect now, you've been warned, so when these things come, you're not going to think, what's happened, have I gone into sin, or I don't know what's happening to me, no one told me about this. Jesus himself as well, it's encouraging because he went through it and he said we will as well. And I just say this with all respect, but God help us if we ever preach a gospel that doesn't prepare people for the cost of following Jesus because there is cost involved. And he tells us to count the cost. And it's for this reason, if you don't tell people and they don't know it, then they start the journey and fall away. And the word says that for people to fall away, often it's impossible for them to come back. So God help us if we don't prepare people for that. God help us if we just promise them roses and sunshine, but leave them unprepared to persevere and to know that they have to sometimes focus on holding on to Jesus and not shying away from hardship. We need to teach that character comes out of adversity, that God loves you unconditionally, but too much to leave you as you are. Wouldn't you rather know about the cost? I was just thinking about that if I said to Karen, oh, Karen, let's go for a coffee and a walk. And then we went and I arranged to meet her at the coffee club at Chermside, so she met me there and she had her nice dress and high heels and everything on. And we had a coffee. And then afterwards I got into the car and I drive out to the Glasshouse Mountains and I said, right, now we're going for a walk up that mountain. She'd be pretty ticked off, wouldn't she? I thought you said we were going for a nice walk. Karen, it is a nice walk. It's a beautiful day. Look at this beautiful scenery. And I've got high heels on, you should have told me. Okay, that sounds very simplistic. But if we tell people, they'll be prepared. So when it comes, it's not a shock, okay? And they know that they've got to hang on. Right, now, um, that book I mentioned earlier, Steve Hill's book called Spiritual Avalanche. I'm just going to give you a brief context, and I'm going to share one part, and then later I'm going to read the vision. But he received a vision from God about a, um, a snow avalanche. God showed him how a mountain got increasingly covered by layer upon layer of falling snow. And on the mountain, there was a popular busy ski resort. And as I said, I'll read you the vision later on, but 
um, in the vision, at the end of the vision, God shows him how the ski, patro uh, ski patrol used bombs, helicopters, and artillery to trigger avalanches whilst no one was on the mountain so that it would save lives. And, you know, when he, after that, he decided that he better check and confirm all those details of what he'd seen and, um, before he shared and taught from the vision. And so he had a contact that put him in touch with a man that was very high up in the ski patrol in the Colorado Rockies. And he spoke to him and he shares, I'm going to read from um, his book where he shares the conversation that he had with this guy. The officer confirmed what I saw in the vision concerning the destruction of avalanches. He said that the bombs, helicopters and heavy artillery that I saw are all used to defuse the danger. He said, at the sign of danger, I personally man an anti-tank artillery weapon with 105 millimeters howitzer shells. The cannon is set on the base highway aimed at the mountain and I begin firing. Some of the, some of, um, the explosives set off avalanches five miles away. Then the officer began to startle me with information. He spoke about the dangers of winter sport, especially backcountry skiing. His serious tone of voice seemed to be that of a military watchman. His responsibility was the same as mine, life and death. He wasn't in this vital position to make friends. On the contrary, due to his often direct unwanted warnings, he would cause recipients to attack back. Without wavering, he would scream at arrogant professional skiers as they mounted their snowmobiles, hoping to catch some white powder in the backcountry. He would ardently shout out his professional opinion, always willing to catch flack from those who felt superior and invincible. A loving father screams out to his little boy to look both ways before crossing the street. These loving rangers scream out to grown boys and girls to look both ways before launching themselves down the mountain. The little boy who pays no attention is hit by a distracted driver. The skier who pays no attention is hit by a wave of unforgiving snow. This reminds me of the work of the ministry. A man or woman of, called of God will preach, warn, exert, uh, sorry, exhort, and oftentimes passionately prepare a message that will infuriate some and offend others. Thankfully, there are those who, always, who, are, who are saved because they chose to listen and obey. And then he goes on to say this, I've been delivering God's word for many decades. My goal has never been to make more friends. Most of us need to reduce our friendship circles and surround ourselves with those who are truly committed. So we are charged, we are under an obligation to correct, rebuke and encourage and we need to take that charge seriously. We're either going to please man or we're going to please God. Right, to move on to 2 Timothy 4 verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. And I believe that time is here. We're in it, we've been in it for a while. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. From the Amplified, for the time is coming when people will not tolerate or endure sound and wholesome instruction. But having ears itching for something pleasing and gratifying, they will gather to themselves one teacher after another to a considerable number, chosen to satisfy their own liking and to foster the errors they hold. Do you know the doctrines of the Bible? Church, do you know what you believe? Do you know the doctrines of the Bible? The doctrines are the teaching of Jesus found in the gospel. The letters then go on to explain these teachings and talk about how to apply them into the church, into the situations the church was facing. 
And among those situations that the churches were facing was false doctrine coming in in various forms. And as I said, we're going to look at these over the series. But what I want you to understand is those were not just written for then. Okay, those exact teachings, those exact false doctrines are in the church today. They've just got a different camouflage and we're going to peel back the camouflage and show you. So you need to know the doctrines of Christ. You need to know the explanation because it deals with false teachers and false teachings. And you personally have got a responsibility to ensure that you know them. You need to know for yourselves what the Bible says so that you can be quick to pick up error and not believe the lie and so fall into deception. And we need to never, ever fall into the trap of thinking that we couldn't be deceived because the Bible warns us over and over again that we could be. Stephen J. Cole puts it like this. Note also that the deception takes place on the heart level, which refers to both the mind and the emotions. Deceivers know how to manipulate people's feelings. They will tell you stories that tug on your heart. They get you laughing. They often ridicule those who stand firm for biblical truth and portray them as mean, angry, and unloving. They appeal to greed and the desire that we all have to be healthy. If you'll just send them a gift, they'll pray for your prosperity and healing. By preying on your feelings, they lure you into their web of deception. So to recognize false teachers, watch their motives, their message, their master, and their methods. Right, 2 Timothy 4.4. 4. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Amplified, and they will turn aside from hearing the truth and wander into myths and man-made fictions. Right, now I'm going to read you that vision that Steve Hill got um, that he shares in his book, Spiritual Avalanche, and just remind you of the context. He received a vision from God of a snow avalanche, and God first showed him how a mountain got increasingly covered by layer upon layer of snow falling on the mountain, and that mountain had a popular busy ski resort on it. And God explained the vision to him as follows. The fresh new snow represents false teaching that is steadily falling on the ears of the body of Christ. It has been and is a heavy snowfall. The skiers represent believers and non-believers trusting the resort for a safe and memorable experience. As Christians, we've been warned in Scripture, be sober, be vigilant, because your enemy the devil walks around like a roaring, about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. However, several currently popular awe-inspiring teachers have lulled many into a deep sleep. Layers upon layer of snow have been steadily covering the solid traditional truth of Christ. God's word tells us that foolish teaching in these days will become so fashionable even the most dedicated believer can become deceived. For false Christs and false, false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Matthew 24, 24. It's happening before our eyes. One spiritual leader said the other day, you guys are old-fashioned holiness. We are modern-day grace. You live in bondage while we can do anything we want. Pastors and teachers worldwide have succumbed to heretical teachings, including universal reconciliation, deification of man, challenging the validity of God's word, including his judgments, and even lifting any boundaries. Claiming his amazing grace is actually amazing freedom. Sound familiar? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 17 verse 6. 
Now, David and I had already planned on the series to talk to most of what's mentioned, but those things in there, those are the myths and man-made teachings. Universal reconciliation, we're seeing that, aren't we? We're seeing that um, unfolding already, deification of man, and, and for, I think in particular this is one of the ones that we face here in Australia, where it's become all about me. The gospel has become about me. All right, and that's lifting up man. So, uh, and I think as well with the society we live in as a whole, as well in general, there's the entitlement mentality, there's the deification of man. It's about me, it's about my wounds, it's about how wonderful I am, it's about what God owes me, what God could do for me. And it comes in, well, to me it's not subtle, but it seems to be for some people it's subtle and they don't realize. Challenging the authority of God's word. Um, you know, including his judgments and lifting boundaries. Look how many big preachers, big worldwide preachers have been asked about homosexuality and they will not give a straight answer. All right, the word is very clear. So challenging the validity or the authority of God's word and lifting boundaries and saying that this grace is actually freedom. All right, um, and I wasn't actually going to even talk to those now, but one thing that I do want to say is God help us should we ever, ever consider holiness to be old-fashioned and that it's been replaced by grace. But it's out there, that hyper grace, and as I said, we'll talk later. But my Bible tells me that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the God who is holy and righteous in the Old Testament is the same God that we serve. The God who said to Jeremiah... Should you not fear me, declares the Lord, should you not tremble in my presence? That's the same holy God that we serve. Yes, Jesus died so that we can approach this amazing holy God. But you know what? We do so only in the righteousness of Christ and with respect and awe. And you know, you've got to have a revelation of God's holiness to be able to truly worship him, to worship him in spirit and truth. And if you're not getting taught all God's attributes because all of the attributes form his holiness, you won't have a revelation of his holiness. These are his attributes. God is light. God is justice and judgment. God is anger and wrath. God is mercy and loving kindness. God is grace. God is power. Not just love and grace, okay? We serve a holy God and so let's approach him as such. You know, and the closer you come to light, to light like that, the light that God is, the closer you come, yes, his love draws you, but the harder it is because you see, the closer you come to that light, the more you see your true self, you see what is in you. And that's what sanctification is, realizing as you get closer to God what's in you and repenting, dealing, moving on to the next level. So what's our safeguard against deception? the Word of God. Get into it for yourself. Get to know it inside and out. And more importantly, apply it to your life. It's no good if you don't apply it. If you just read it and don't apply it, it's no good. All right? James 1, to 25. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forget what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. What do you use a mirror for? 
When you go and look in a mirror, if you've noticed that you've buttoned your shirt all wrong, do you go out to work like that or do you stand and correct it? Correct it, I hope. If you see that you've got um, Nutella, all those secret Nutella eaters, you know, the spoon in the jar, it's nice. But if you see that smeared on your face, you don't go out like that. You do something about it, you wipe it. So you look into a mirror to correct your physical appearance. Why would you do any less with the mirror of the word? Do you know what the Bible, Derek Prince says this, and I love it. You don't just read the Bible, your Bible reads you. All right, so when it's convicting and bringing up things, do something about it, do something with it. You will be blessed. The Bible says if you do it, you'll be blessed in what you do. So this word of God is our absolute standard against which we are to measure everything. I don't care what it is, everything. This is the standard. And it's absolute. We measure our lives against it. We need to measure the messages we hear against this as well. And you know, sadly, some of the messages that are becoming popular are nothing more than motivational speaking, self-help, self-promoting psychology and marketing sprinkled with a bit of scripture. Now, I've got a slide here to show you that I just made. It says, do you realize just how awesome and amazing you really are and how much you deserve? I nearly put there, hey girl, do you realize? Is that right? No one laughed. Did I get it wrong? What's that, guys? Hey, babe. All right. Hey, babe. Do you realize just how amazing you are? But I thought, I don't want the boys to feel it's only for the girls. It's not. All right. So it tastes great. It gives you a buzz for a while, but it will never nourish you. That's what a lot of the teaching is like that is out there at the moment. All right. So it's not a joke. That's what people are being fed on as their whole diet. And you know, let me just say, the responsibility doesn't only lie with the preacher. It lies with the hearers too. Yes, we will answer and we will give an account for what we preach. But you have also got a responsibility to look at what you're taking and and to know the word for yourself and to be checking out. And that, that cupcake is just a visual representation, a food representation, if you like, of what teaching to tickle itchy ears, what it would look like if it was in food form. Test everything against the Word of God. The Word says that not even one comma, one little jot is to be changed. And a large portion of the church has been seduced by false teaching and it's complacent, compromised, comfortable and asleep and they don't even know it. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Who do you think Jesus was talking to? Anyone? Was he talking to unbelievers or people that don't call themselves the church or Christians? No. No. He says, many will say, we did this and we did that in your name. So they clearly believe that they are are Christians and are saved. Okay, and so the question that I want to leave you with this is, is this. Do you know the word of God well enough that you would recognize a lie? Bear in mind that lies are counterfeits that are designed to look so much like the truth that the expert can tell the difference. So do you know it enough? And let me just say to you, you know, um, if you felt this word might be 
hard, then maybe it's correction, rebuking, and for a lot of you, hopefully, it's encouragement to get out and to speak with boldness. Because let me tell you, trying to make the church like the world, let's just let them all come in and feel welcome and let them not feel uncomfortable. It's just loving them right into hell. All right, if you look at everywhere where people got saved in the word of God, they were cut to the quick. You're doing people more good by telling them the full word of God where they can get convicted, get repented, repent, and then come into that relationship with Christ. And I'm just going to end with a statement that I recently read, and it's this. Hearsay does not bludgeon us into belief. We are seduced. Thank you. Thanks, Stace.